Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for being here for another edition of Political Rewind. Lots to talk about today, so I want to get right to our panel and begin asking some questions and getting analysis from all of you. Uh, Greg Bluestein is here. It's Wednesday. He is, uh, I always call him the lead political reporter at the AJC, and I don't think many people would argue with that. You see Greg is byline in uh, virtually every edition of the paper, and of course he also writes for the Political Insider blog at uh, AJC.com. Hey, Hey, how's Good it going? Good to have you here. Shana Tova. And to, to you as well. Happy New Year for those of you out there who don't speak Hebrew. Uh, <laughs> Terry Anulwitz is sitting next to you. If you're watching on Facebook Live, everybody, you'll see her. She is a Democratic state representative from Smyrna. We're glad to have you back on the show, show Terry. Thank you for having me back. And across from you, Heath Garrett, a longtime Republican strategist, consultant, most closely associated throughout his career with Senator Johnny Isaacson. And later in the show, uh, we're going to be interested, Heath, in hearing what you have to say about your conversations with Johnny about impeachment. But we'll hold that for later in the show. It's great to be back. Yeah, we're glad you're here. In the meantime, we have uh, John Ossoff in the studio with us, I'm glad to say. Uh, you all know that uh, he was uh, the candidate uh, the Democratic candidate for the 6th District special election, one of the most, if not, Greg, the most watched elections uh, in 2017. Uh, John, you had a remarkable uh, run in that. You raised a ton of dough. You got an enormous amount of national attention and uh, came relatively close to winning that seat. It went to Karen Handel, who then turned around and lost subsequently. But now you've thrown your head in the ring. You are a candidate for the David Perdue seat in the U.S. Senate. So thank you so much for being here for the first segment of our show today. Thanks for having me. Well, I, Greg, I want to give you the first question. I always want to point out to our listeners, we have offered each of the candidates for U.S. Senate as they announce an opportunity to come talk to us. So we're really glad John Ossoff is here today. And we have repeatedly invited David Perdue to come in and be on the show, and we're hoping at some point he'll do it. Anyhow, take it away. Yeah, so so much has changed since 2017, but so much has not. You were, you were wary of nationalizing the race back then in 2017, but things have changed, including the impeachment inquiry. So, so how, do you, how do you navigate a race that is local but also going to be so intensely watched nationally? Well, that race in 2017 did have an unusual amount of national attention and also an unusual amount of focus on the president himself, um, which required me to try to focus as exclusively as I could on local issues just to get anything else out there, because otherwise every question I got all the time was about Donald Trump. Um, I think that, you know, this Senate race is going to come down to issues, yes, national and also local. I think that the country is in a bad way right now. I think it's not just Donald Trump, although this presidency is deeply disturbing. I think that he is disgracing the office. I think he needs to lose, and he needs to lose badly. It's also deeper than that. It's about the dysfunction in our political system, the corruption of our political system, the way that the will of the people is no longer expressed through their elected representatives because the system's been perverted by money, by special interests, by partisanship. You know, it's interesting. We've had kind of a running debate over the last week among panelists on this show since the uh, impeachment inquiry kicked into high gear, John. Um, and it's been, some of our panelists have said, yes, as, as Greg Bluestein just asked you, how much do you focus now on, the, on what Democrats will allege is the corruption of President Trump, his misdeeds in office? And other panelists who have some panelists have said, you've got to do that. And others who've said, no, no, the, the voters in Georgia and everywhere else still care. They care about health care. Um, they care about guns, gun safety. They care about much more localized uh, and, and specific uh, issues, social, societal issues than they do about what's going on with the impeachment. You're saying you've got to do a little of both. Well, what I'm saying is that Political corruption in America is a problem deeper than Donald Trump. Arguably, Donald Trump is a symptom of the effects of political corruption in America. And when we're talking about pocketbook issues like that, when Congress refuses to crack down on price gouging by pharmaceutical companies, 
because of the financial influence of that industry. When Congress throws out consumer protections for people on health insurance because of the influence of that industry, when Congress is so beholden to the National Rifle Association that despite 90% of the country supporting universal background checks, it does nothing, that's corruption. These are all examples of corruption. The, the, the concentration of power and wealth and the opening of the floodgates of big money in politics and dark money in politics, secret, anonymously sourced money, has destroyed the political system. What do you here. do about it? Well, the first act that I will take as a U.S. senator is to co-sponsor a constitutional amendment to ban dark money from American politics by overturning the Citizens United decision. I don't think that anyone really believes that it's healthy, that it's a good idea, that you can secretly, anonymously, and in unlimited amounts spend money on political propaganda in this country. And we talk about the nationalization of races. You know, oftentimes folks at home who are watching political advertising, they have no way of knowing who's funding it. They have no way of knowing what the intentions of those funding it are. And candidates and elected officials are so afraid of that big anonymous money coming in against them that it affects the way they vote. And that is why we get the kind of public policy outcomes we do. I mean, let's think about environmental policy. When the federal government is silencing its own environmental scientists because the findings of those scientists threaten fossil fuel industry profits, that's corruption. The EPA is run by energy industry executives. The Department of Defense is run by a former lobbyist for a defense contractor. Yes, I think that Trump is dangerous and unhinged, but I think that we have to look deeper and solve these problems or we're going to get even worse down the road. He it does sound like John Ossoff when he talks about things like EPA and other agencies now being run by people who, in fact, may have been regulated themselves. He's still it's going after Donald Trump, clearly. Well, there's no question. Look, at the end of the day, this these campaigns are going to be about Donald Trump. They always are about an incumbent, right? The 2012 election was a referendum on Barack Obama, uh, and this is going to be a referendum on, on Donald Trump. And I think I'm not giving advice to a Democratic candidate, right? I know my role on this show and in life, but at the end of the day, uh, I think uh, – John's making a good uh, balance of uh, impeachment, something to be talked about. And we will talk about this probably other times on the show. But uh, at the same point in time, the average American, the average Georgian wants somebody to talk to him about the things that are affecting them around their kitchen table at the end of the day. And that's not impeachment, right? It's it's health care. It's, it's job security. It's income. It's those kind of things. Obviously, I disagree with John on his assessment. I think different philosophical opinions are not corruption, right? They're, they're very uh, well-based philosophical philosophical uh, issues that obviously John and I are going to disagree on as Republicans and Democrats. Uh, and so I think that the, where I do think the Democrats may make a mistake is overplaying their hand on this corruption or on impeachment because uh, it's not what the, the, the final voters are going to decide on. Well, if I might, Heath, and I appreciate yeah. that. Um, but I'm not just talking about Donald Trump. And let me be very clear. And I think that, honestly, I think a lot of Republican voters and professional Republicans know and feel in their heart that what's going on in this presidency is not right. It's just not right. And we know it. But there's a lot of going along to get along. But what I'm saying is that there are deeper issues than Donald Trump. And they don't just afflict the Republican Party. It is our political system that is being destroyed by the influence of money in politics. I'm not talking about different political philosophies. What I'm saying is that when people can spend unlimited amounts of money in secret to influence campaigns, that corrupts the political system. And I think it's hard to argue with that. So, uh, Terry, it's, I didn't I failed to point out, Terry, at the very beginning of the show, that Cobb County is well represented uh, in the House today. Both you and Heath Garrett uh, uh, live and work in Cobb or you represent uh, uh, Smyrna in Cobb County. So how do you feel um, you won a special election in 2017. I did. And, and so you're part of that Democratic wave that you could very well be moving across uh, the 6th District. 
when you hear the way uh, John Ossoff talks about Trump, talks about the larger issues of corruption, how do you think he's going to play for your voters up there? Well, and, and, and a little bit of my my House District 42 falls within Congressional District 6. Right. And I am a part of that cohort of college-educated suburban ladies of a certain age that really helped form a lot of, of, of John's base in his special election. And I know that that... That, that group of women became such a formidable ground army, and I think that they helped lead to all of the seats that we then ended up flipping in the Georgia House of Representatives this last election cycle. When I'm thinking about the conversation that I just listened to with Heath and with John, I thought about Heath talking about families aren't talking about impeachment around the kitchen table. And that might be true, but I know what my family talks about around our kitchen table. And one of the things that is so deeply concerning to me as a college-educated suburban lady voter of a certain age, is the the culture that we have in Washington right now, the absolute lack of civility that we have right now, the things that are as as elementary and literally elementary school as name-calling to the you know threats of treason. And, and you know what that means when someone's threatening someone with treason. Yeah. And that is deeply concerning to me as a voter. You know, what what is the influence of that culture in Washington yeah, we, on, at, my, at my kitchen table? I, I apologize, I which is why you can't take the Trump out of this uh, no. 2020 election right. for sure. Well, and, uh, and, and Representative, I mean, it's a really important point. And it, it brings me to a moment of discussing our incumbent Senator David Perdue. Because I believe most people are realizing that this is not right. That the way this man behaves, the way he speaks, the way he conducts himself in office, his lack of competence are not acceptable. And I think that history is going to judge very harshly those Republican elected officials. And Heath, your, your boss or former boss, Senator, Senator Isaacson, is not one of these. He has, he has allowed himself independence to speak for himself, so, to speak for his state. David Perdue has not. So, he, Greg, it's been a long time since we've seen any polling uh, on, on, you know, favorables, unfavorables. It's been quite a while since the AJC last did mm-hmm. the polls. I don't know what internal polls we are, are showing. Poll- we are all doing polling soon, so okay. there'll be an update. But, but when, when uh, John tries to, when he ties Perdue to Trump, as he has You don't have to did. try to. Well, okay, but the last time you polled this, David Perdue had higher favorability ratings than either... Brian Kemp, who was at that point very, very early in his tenure, mm-hmm. or President Trump. So it, what's going to be interesting to watch is how the Democratic candidates try to make the Purdue Association with Trump something that will stick, because so far it doesn't seem to have happened. If you look at polls of a f- months ago, the conventional wisdom from Republican strategists is that is that Senator Perdue will do better than Brian Kemp did in the suburbs, um, which he'll need to do to win because because he just got uh, creamed in the in the suburbs and and with the population trends being the way they are, with a higher turnout uh, presidential election, you're in real trouble if you if you lose Gwinnett and Cobb by the margins that Governor Kemp lost Gwinnett and Cobb by. Um, that said. It will be really interesting to see how all these Democratic candidates kind of thread that needle. Yeah, in. I mean, and if they go to look, this is to me, this is all fascinating because I could write a book about the 2017 race. But in the 2017 race, um, John Ossoff and, and 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 early on too, some of the other Democrats would barely mention Trump's name because this was a district that Trump had just won, not by a lot, but by a, a, about two points, point and a half. Um, so it was there was a concern deeper into the campaign, not at the beginning, but deeper into the campaign about nationalizing the race. Now you can't avoid it. Go ahead, John. Let's remember, though, that when I launched that campaign, he'd only been elected six weeks Mm -hmm. before. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And like many people, I thought that there was a chance that this man, if he surrounded himself with the right advisors and if he prayed on it and had a moment of humility and self-awareness, could govern perhaps with a measure of more integrity and decency than how he ran. Let's talk. We are, well, let me just say this, Bill. No, but we, are now, like, we are now three years into this presidency, and it is worse than many of us could have imagined. Um, let, let's go to another aspect of the campaign. You've been pretty clear in saying that the windfall, the vast amount of money you were able to raise in the special election, uh, and the and the support for the foot soldiers who came in to work on your behalf, was an anomaly in some ways. Uh, 
uh, to what you expect now. Your first uh, fundraising period, you showed you raised over $800,000. You just put those figures out overnight. Um, and you, I think, took money from your congressional race and put it over. So you up to a million three at this point, three years, a- three weeks after announcing. Not a bad beginning. Well, I think it speaks to the depth of concern about the direction of this country and how passionate people are about changing course. And folks are willing to, you know, put money on the line to change history in this country. But at the same time, you, like many Georgia Democrats, and Greg certainly can speak to this too, have expressed concern that while you expected national Democrats to really come racing down here, given two Senate races, given only a five-point victory by Trump in uh, 2016, you really thought they'd be rushing in and you're, you're worried that they're not so far Well, look, the margin of apparent defeat in Stacey Abrams' race was about 57,000 votes. I think we've seen, if I saw it reported in the AJC, that 350,000 new voters have registered since that election. A majority of them will likely lean Democratic. This is the most competitive state in the country. The Senate majority will be decided here. And I agree with Stacey Abrams that it would be political malpractice for national Democrats not to compete. Greg, why aren't they coming so far? You know, I heard, I've heard, you know, on background from, from Washington Democrats that be patient. They're trying to analyze their, their strategy. They're trying to figure out there's so many needs. There's, there's other battleground states, too, where they could send resources. But what we know is they have started sending grassroots organizers to about a half a dozen states, and Georgia is not one of them. So I understand why Democrats who, who have been, you know, saying for years, more than you know, the better part of the decade, that Georgia is a battleground state, when in reality it wasn't quite there yet. Well, now there's no, now you don't hear Rep- Republicans saying that Georgia's not a battleground state anymore. You're hearing them acknowledge it. And so I, I get the frustration. Terry? No, I agree. I mean, I, I part of me, I'm torn. I, I do think that it is early. And I think that they're very occupied in D.C. right now. I think that we don't know who Kemp is appointing yet to that other seat and to to succeed Senator Isaacson. And I think that that's one of the most important data points that we're going to have going into this. I think that once we know who the person is, who, who the candidate is that the Democrats going to be running against, I think, one, you'll have some Democrats who are then ready to announce. But two, I think then you'll get the national mobilization down here that I do think we're going to need. And I do think we should have. But, it, well, but I think it's coming, yeah. right? Look, as a Republican, I know the Democratic money's coming. I think they're relying right now on Stacey Abrams' operation and Fair Fight. Uh, was that the name of it now? I know it's Fair This fair fight and Fair action. That. And, and, and and so I think that they're relying on that organization to be doing a lot of this preparation for the ground game because she was successful at it, right? So why not leave it? Why not leave it with her uh, to do it as long as you can? But there's absolutely right. Waiting on everybody's waiting on the Isaacson seat replacement, and then dominoes will start falling. Right. Bluestein just got a text. I got a text from a high-level Democrat who did want to know that there are investments happening in Georgia. Now. So somebody right. listening to the show yeah, wanted to weigh in. That are behind okay. the scenes, but we haven't seen sort of the big splashy. And that doesn't mean there's not investments happening. I think it's Democratic dark money going to help that we just haven't seen transparently. Where's my Democratic dark money? <laughs> John, we've only got another minute or sure. so with you. And, and what I want to do is give you the opportunity, as I've done to every candidate who comes in. I, take the floor. Uh, if this were the debate, uh, give us your closing statement. Uh, just, you know, 30 seconds to a minute of, of why you're the guy for this job. Look, like I said at the top of the program, the country's in a bad way right now. Presidential leadership is appalling. The political system is being destroyed by money. The people's will is not being represented. The will of powerful industries is being represented. The will of powerful donors is being represented. And it's a bipartisan problem. This presidency is an obscenity. And my message for folks listening at home is, if that rings true to you, then let's get ready to work together and make history. John Ossoff, Democratic candidate for the for for what we're calling race number one, the David Perdue Senate seat. Uh, thank you so much for uh, being here today. We'll follow your campaign with great interest in the uh, weeks and months ahead. So thank you for joining us today. Uh, let's do this. Let's take a break. Give John a chance to uh, go uh, on his way to another campaign event. Uh, and uh, we'll be back with a lot more after this. If you recently supported GPB during our fall fund drive, thank you. We're already putting your dollars to work to bring you the programs that matter to you on GPB. 
If you didn't get a chance to donate during the drive, your online contribution now will still make a difference. Please take a couple of minutes to go to gpb.org and click the green donate button at the top of the page. Thanks so much for your generous support of GPB and the service we provide every day. The biggest worry for the head of U.S. counterintelligence? China. Both traditional espionage and corporate. Semiconductors, nanotechnology, they want a green energy. What are we doing with agriculture? Biopharma. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. My conversation with America's senior spy catcher this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Four till seven today here on GPB, and you can also listen online at gpbnews.org or ask your smart speaker to play GPB. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. So uh, he thought, uh, you know, I thought John Ossoff was interesting because he's trying to carefully, you sort of got, got the message. He is going to campaign against President Trump, but he's also not going to let that be the only thing that he talks about. He also he's going to talk, he's corruption is going to be a big part of right. his campaign, which makes sense for a guy who spent his uh, career uh, doing documentaries on corruption or, around the globe, literally. But Democrats are going to have to. You said it during that conversation. They're going to have to be measured in how. They attack the president and how much they make that their message. That's right. They have to do that nationally. But here in Georgia, too, they have to be very careful. Yes. Because, right, uh, we are still a slightly right state uh, when it comes to uh, full-on presidential campaigns. There were a lot of Republicans who did not vote in the 2018 election, a lot more of those than are currently being registered by Democrats. And so if there is this Trump bump in Georgia, uh, you have to be careful where, where you as the Democratic potential nominee go on that. I, I want to give credit to Democrats where I can. John Ossoff has said something that I think I've heard very few Democrats say. If you want to fix the corruption of money in politics, it will require a constitutional amendment. Yeah, you're going to have to and, go after Citizens and, and, and United. I, and I thought that was refreshing to hear from somebody who's actually studied the issue. And he said it was a bipartisan issue, uh, which I agree with him on. So I, I found a few things There's that were smart about his the kiss of death for John Ossoff's <laughs> campaign. Heath Garrett just said he <laughs> likes some of what he had to say. That was not a Machiavellian compliment. You, you can hear from, from, from that message of his. I mean, it's tuned for a he, he's taking very liberal and progressive positions on some issues, but there's other issues like that that we, where he's trying to go for a broader yeah. a broader swath of, of, of Georgia voters. Hey, Terry, one of the things that was interesting uh, that came up in that conversation was uh, the fact that we now have this huge pool of new of of registered voters right. in the state of Georgia, largely due to the automatic registration which people get when they obtain their driver's licenses, we're up to 7.1 million, million registered voters in the state. So I have two inter- two questions about that. I mean, one of them is um, most important. I think the AJC reports, as they looked into this, a lot of those voters are younger. They are likely to be minorities. Right. You would think that accrues to Democrats, but Democrats, y'all still have to get them to the polls. <laughs> we have to get them to the polls, and that's right. In the AJC article, they reported that 47% of these new voters are minorities, and 45% of them are younger than 30 years old. And that means that they're probably going to be voting Democratic. You're right. We do need to get if them. If they to, vote. If they vote. Yeah. And that's what's so interesting. You know, I mean, Stacey Abrams, a lot of folks think that the Abrams-Kemp race was the high watermark. I don't necessarily think that that's the case. I think that we we I think there are still a lot of folks we can get to the polls, especially again you're getting you haven't you're having to engage these new voters. I think that the fact that we will be engaging these new voters during a presidential election year is probably going to go a long way. I think that even you know that's going to that is going to have be higher turnout than the mid than the midterms. So I think that 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 will be a good way to get them engaged. But yeah, I think most of these folks moving into the state are probably going to be voting Democratic. And it's also why you see such an emphasis on voter registration from the candidates. Also, I've had had a big rally on Saturday from from the party, the state parties backing all sorts of voter registration efforts, and from groups like the New Georgia Project, which Stacey Abrams founded, um, that's been out there for years now trying to. 
register these voters and then get them involved in, in campaigns so they actually go out and cast ballots. And I think a couple of points of this from the Republican perspective. Yeah, 47% are. Uh, I think the Republican Party, my clients, my candidates, our organization uh, has learned a lot from what Abrams did. I don't think there's going to be a free run in that department uh, in 2020 the way that there had been between 2012 and 2018. Uh, Republicans, I think, underestimated the, the change in demographics and the organization and the national environment. So we're not that won't happen in 2020. Number one, number two, uh, we recognize there is a diversity gap in the Republican Party, and the the smart candidates on the Republican side are actually doing things about it. There was a big rally with Asian Americans this past Saturday. We had about 400 people for Republicans, right? And so, yes, are the are we as Republicans uh, behind on some of that? Absolutely, but the Republican Party's owning that and and making the efforts to uh, to broaden that. And uh, I think voter registration, we're going to see the first real Republican voter registration drive. I've always remind people there are actually more rural white voters unregistered to vote than there are minority voters in the urban cores of Georgia uh, that are out there. And Republican Party's just never gone out and tried to organize that. And I think we'll be doing outreach uh, and voter registration in minority communities as well. And look, that was a big part of Governor Kemp's election strategy. You know, you know, there was a lot more attention on Abrams trying to get out unlikely um, uh, minority voters and, and, and younger voters who don't usually vote in midterms. But the, the governor's campaign did the exact same thing for Trump voters who usually skip midterms out in exurban and rural areas where they had uh, legions of door knockers going around and saying, OK, you voted for Trump in 16. What are you doing for 18? All right. So I said a minute ago that I, for me, this notion of all these new this new pool of registered voters raises two questions, one of which is who it accrues to the benefit of maybe Democrats. The other one, Greg, is it, it contributes to this a question that I think a lot of people have out there. We, we heard so much in uh, the last governor's race about uh, voter nullification, voter suppression, whatever. Um, w- when you now have a pool of 7.1 million uh, registered voters, many of them because of automatic registration, which a, a lot of states only wish they had automatic voter registration to expand their pools. I do think it leaves kind of a mixed message for people, for for ordinary folks out there who keep hearing about all of the corruption behind voter suppression on the last time out. The only issue there, though, is that just because you have a large pool doesn't mean that there can't be tactics that are used to disqualify some of them, I suppose. You've kind of summed it up. I mean, on one hand, Republicans (laughs) said Stacey Abrams was the highest vote-getter and Democratic vote-getter in in, in Georgia history. So um, how is this their widespread uh, It's the worst case of suppression in history. But on the other hand, you know, there were were lots of, uh, you know, there's voter cancellations. There was uh, exact match issues. There was uneven counting of provisional ballots and absentee ballots. Many things that both parties agreed on needed to be changed. That's why you saw that legislation earlier this year to fix some of those issues. And many things that were more attributed to local election officials than state. So you can have both. Yeah. All right. uh, Let's move on to a different issue for just a minute. Uh, Greg, uh, yesterday, the uh, federal court here in uh, Atlanta uh, put a hold on HB 481. It was supposed to take effect on January 1st. Uh, And of course, that bill all but outlaws abortion in uh, Georgia, and Judge Jones uh, responded to an ACLU uh, uh, filing uh, asking that it that it be held back while it goes through the courts by saying that the Supreme Court has consistently upheld the right of a woman to have an abortion up to the viability of the fetus, which the Supreme Court decided was 24 or 25 weeks. It's a big deal for the people, the pro-choice people, but it's only the beginning of a long fight. It's only the beginning, and this was not unexpected. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, even when this when this law was uh, was was passed and the, during the debate, both supporters and opponents all figured this was this was headed to a a temporary injunction, and that eventually it would land in the in the U.S. Supreme Court, and that's sort of the goal here. Yeah, I mean, Terry, when I say it's a big deal, what I mean by that is th- we did expect it, but it gives a, they can go out and raise money on it, for oh, instance. <laughs> absolutely, and I hope I hope that we Democrats raise lots of money on this, but. No, we we knew before this ever came to the floor for a vote that this was going to be the very first step in the legal case against what what House Bill 481. I mean, 
that's why a lot of opponents of the bill, when we were debating this on the floor, were asking for a fiscal note. Because what is this going to cost the taxpayers of Georgia to defend, knowing full well going into this bill that if it passed, there would immediately be a lawsuit and the state would immediately be paying a lot of fancy lawyers a lot of money to defend this very special piece of legislation. Yeah, uh, Heath, um, it guarantees that the abortion will play out in the entire election cycle next year, especially in legislative races. Yeah? I think there are a couple of different aspects. The constitutional aspect is really interesting to me on this. No one, no, no Republicans even surprised that the judge did what he did about that. I guess the one thing that could have been argued was whether or not the law was severable or not, which means portions could be upheld while other portions were struck Can down. Can we explain that? Yeah. There are really two sections to this measure Correct. that the judge was asked to look at. Number one, the six-week, uh, uh, the heart, heartbeat. so-called heartbeat right. ban, and which stopped abortions when the heartbeat is detected, although there are people who argue that that's not really what happens at six weeks. Nevertheless, that was one aspect. One aspect. The other aspect was personhood, that a the minute a fetus is detected, it becomes a human being, that uh, it's entitled all the rights of a human being. And that was part of this argument was, can you separate the two out? That's right. And the judge ruled that you cannot. So the entire bill was held uh, with a preliminary injunction and uh, kind of delays the implementation of everything. Thing. And so I think what that does is it actually probably provides the legislature with a little bit of cover to say, we've still got to wait on this to make its way through the courts. If they were to try to do something in the middle of this, it just kind of muddies up the water. It's definitely headed towards the Supreme Court. It's the only question I have is whether or not it's Georgia's law or is it Alabama's or Ohio's or New York's or a combination thereof. So it's going to go from this judge to a hearing. It's going to go from this hearing to the 11th Circuit. And there's a lot of, uh, to happen. Uh, here, uh, but it definitely on the constitutional and on the political side makes 2020 abortion a, a real issue in a lot of districts around uh, suburban Atlanta uh, and in other and in primaries on both the Democratic side and on the Republican side and other and other areas. I think what's interesting. I want to throw in, though, from an economic development standpoint, the stay by the judge probably buys the state of Georgia a fair amount of time to continue to build its infrastructure around industries that have threatened the boycott because this is what they anticipated having happen. And I think that that that. It's an interesting he, part of it. He makes it. He makes a good point, Greg. Uh, we saw an awful lot of movie industry people, particularly uh, some who wanted an immediate boycott of the state, but most of them said, "We we will take action after we see what happens to whether this bill." Uh, goes into law on January 1st. They bought themselves some time, yeah. too. Right, I've Derek? spoken to folks in the film industry just in the past couple of weeks who said that they have, you know, they have studio space and they have waiting lists of people who are basically waiting to figure out what was going to happen with this injunction before they then decided to go ahead and go forward with their projects. But there was, there was a holding pattern. And that's a scary thing. Mm-hmm. If, you're, if you're someone who owns studio space yeah. and you have possible tenants who are just kind of waiting and seeing... This is what the studio executives were, were desperate for to give them cover. Yeah. Right. Right. Now, now they can say to all the the the, the producers and actors and, and staffers who are worried about this, hey, well, it, it, it's not going to affect anytime soon anyway. Okay. Right. Go yeah. ahead, Yeah, Terry. but you have producers who are saying, I can't in good conscience bring female employees into a state where a law like this might, might potentially impact their health care. And now they do. They have that cover. All right. Um, and Bill, I do think it would be interesting on the legal side of this. What Your listeners may be asking the question, why is everybody headed to the Supreme Court? Well, when the court last decided when viability was, facts and science kind of built into that 24, 25-week window. One of the things that Republicans think have changed are the understanding of science, whether it's heartbeat at 8 to 12 weeks or heartbeat at 16 to 18 weeks. One of the ideas here is that the Supreme Court may be in a position with new science to say, wait a second, viability may and move backwards a little bit. Do we think it's new science or do we think it's the new makeup of the Supreme Court? Well, I think you can argue <laughs> both, right? Reasonable people can, but I think that there are honest, reasonable people on the side who really say viability is where we ought to be and it has changed because of medical technology. All right, this could take a couple of years at to least, uh, get to uh, the U.S. Supreme yeah. Court. Uh, Greg Bluestein, uh, Philip Singleton won a special election down in the Noonan area, district, whatever it is, I don't remember. Uh, anyhow, it's, he won a special election as a Republican. His opponent was also a Republican, Lynn Westmoreland, former congressman's daughter. Mm-hmm. Why is it significant, especially to David Ralston, 
that it was uh, uh, Singleton who won the race and not Marcy. It was kind of a blowout, too. I mean, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. we're talking just a few thousand voters. but District 71, Tom Foster. District 71. Um, but it was significant because Philip Singleton um, was part of the, now is part of, the, I guess, the somewhat, it's not growing, but he was part of the anti-Ralston caucus. He had, he had said, essentially, that Ralston should not be speaker because of the debate over legislative leave and his uh, use of of legislative leave privileges, which basically allowed him to delay court cases, asked for ex- extensions, and he asked for repeated extensions for for um, for court cases because of his legislative duties. Uh, the AJC wrote a, a big examination of his uh, his use of these powers, and and it, it sparked a lot of outrage. There was already a, you know a handful of of Ralston critics. That that number grew a little bit. There's about ten or so, and one of them was David Stover, who represented this district until he resigned. So this was seen as. Um, in, in a way, as a proxy battle, there's a lot of other issues involved, but this was seen in a way as a proxy battle over over Speaker. Singleton increased his criticism of Ralston as the campaign went on. At first, he was a little reluctant uh, right. to speak out too strongly, but by the end of it, he was saying Ralston ought to go. Meanwhile, uh, Marcy Westmoreland uh, Sackerson was getting active support from the Speaker and the leadership of the House, I think, Republicans, to, in her campaign. But he, 9% of the voters turned out... It's not good news for Ralston, but it's only nine percent of the vote. For goodness' sake, well, it's hard to extrapolate from this that there's a there's a statewide trend, or that the speaker has a bigger or, or newer problem than he had before because the replacement's kind of. A Do you wash. think he has a problem? I really don't. Uh, based on the facts of where the scenario is now, I think he's still popular within the caucus. I think that he's an adult in the room on policy. Uh, I think that he's taking care of his politics. Uh, obviously, there he has his detractors out there, and they're very frustrated. Uh, with him, but at the same point in time, there's been no uh, politically devastating uh, accusation, uh, even in my opinion, uh, that would cause him to be removed as speaker in any way, shape, or form. Now, and remember, Coweta County, all these politics are local, yeah. and these small special elections in one of the most conservative counties uh, in the state. They've always been anti-establishment. And, and, and it's funny, Lynn Westmoreland used to be the anti-establishment yeah. candidate, <laughs> and then his daughter gets labeled establishment, yeah. which is a, is an interesting but note. Look, she did get a lot of establishment help. She, she, she doubled, she outraised him Almost, I think, essentially doubled his fundraising. Almost two to one. Two to one. She she got a lot of support from from Ralston and, and his allies. Uh, Ralston was not out there campaigning for her that I know of. He wasn't right. out there, you know, beating the knocking on doors for for her by any means. But still, I think I think the Singleton allies were able to effectively show that portrayed, even if it wasn't a, a referendum on Ralston, trying to make it seem that yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, before we take a break. I make an awful lot of mistakes on this show, and I'm more than happy to tell people that I'm doing it. But I said a little while ago that one of the things about Judge Steve Jones ruling is that maybe uh, you could raise some money off of this temporary stay. Uh, Just about two minutes ago, the Georgia Democrats sent out a news release. I happen to be on the list of all of these folks. Bill I'm asking for your help and your $5 today because access to reproductive freedom in Georgia is in jeopardy. And it goes on to uh, to say, I'm proud to say, this is signed by Nakima Williams, the chair of the party. I'm proud to say that as yesterday, a federal judge temporarily blocked the abortion ban. The fundraising already is underway and the other side will do the same thing? Absolutely, they will. All right, let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way. We'll come back. And I want to talk first about the panelist on this show who surprised the heck out of a bunch of us yesterday. We'll be right back. From Morning Edition and On Second Thought to Political Rewind and All Things Considered, listener support makes everything you hear on GPB possible. If we didn't hear from you during our fall fund drive, your contribution now will still make a difference. Please take just a couple of minutes to support the programs you rely on and enjoy on GPB and do your part now at whatever level is right for you. Go to gpb.org and click donate And thanks so much for your support of Georgia Public Broadcasting. On the next Fresh Air, my guest will be Conan O'Brien, who's been making changes. He changed the format of his late night show and entered the podcast world with a popular interview show. We'll talk about trying new things, being driven by anxiety, and I'll persuade him to sing a song that influenced him when he was learning to play guitar. 
Join us. Fresh air is this afternoon at 3 here on GPB and gpbnews.org or ask your smart speaker to play GPB. Greg Bluestein, Political Rewind has been on the air now for well over five years, I'm proud to say. And one of the panelists who was with us almost from the beginning was the daughter of former U.S. Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, Jackie Gingrich Cushman. Yesterday, you got the beat on a big item about Jackie. Yeah, she has thrown her name into the online hat <laughs> of, uh, of, of people who are applying to f- for Governor Kemp's favor for the U.S. Senate seat. Yeah. She's one of about 500 people so far. But look, she's she's got to be um, one of the most talked about candidates up there because of her background, because of her familiarity with the media. And because if Kemp wants to go in a direction where he's keeping one eye on the suburbs, um, she's someone who could help the party, you know, presumably, appeal to a suburban woman. Yeah, I mean, look, we now have probably as many as 500 names. As mm-hmm. of just a couple of days ago, it was 450. They've just released another new batch. So there are many, many people who want this job. Uh, you know, yesterday we spent a good amount of time talking about how Jan Jones, the uh, Speaker Pro Tem of the House, seemed like she'd be a strong candidate. In some ways, Singling them out makes not a great deal of sense, but but it is true, Terry. I go to the Democrat first. That Jackie Gingrich Cushman, uh, in a lot of ways, in the same way that Jan Jones does, appeals on the basis of uh, being different for the Republican Party. She is different for the Republican Party in that she is a lady. I mean, she she's a woman, and that is the the, the gender gap is real. I mean, you know, we're talking about, you know. My new colleague in the House in House District 71 is going to be a man. The, the woman is not going to be there. There are only, I think, about 14 Republican women in the Georgia House of Representatives right now. There are more than 40 Democratic women. And I think that being a woman isn't going to be enough in in 2020. I think that I think this goes back to what we were talking about a moment ago. It goes back to choice. And I think that these suburban women who who the Republican Party is is really trying to court, choice is a major issue. For these women, and most of these women do support choice, and so I think that that is absolutely going to be an issue, regardless of who the candidate is. Heath, and I would agree with Terry on that. I think that's why the Republicans have shown some real maturity recently, and several of the women around the suburban north side have voted, uh, you know, in a way that you wouldn't have seen ten years ago on on the choice issue and on abortion. I think you've got a couple of candidates who are running in some of these fifty-fifty swing districts that are women, that are Republicans, that are more moderate uh, in that regarding appeal. I think Jackie Cushman, which started this conversation, is a good person to have in. I mean, we, as I mentioned earlier in the show. Uh, Republicans have kind of known intellectually, right, that they had a gender gap, there's a diversity gap, and there's a generational gap. I like what I see from our potential candidates offering themselves up who fit into all those categories and the white men who are offering themselves up also have a duty to kind of be responsive to those gaps as well in both their policy and their tone and their demeanor. And so the, the Johnny Isaacsons of the world are going to succeed as Republicans in the future um, uh, in, a, in a blended society, in a demographic Graphically diverse society like we're going to have in the state of Georgia and our nation, uh, and those who don't get on that uh, and don't understand that are going to be left behind. Do you have a favorite? For the U.S. Senate, yeah, uh, Johnny Isaacson has got until uh, December the thirty-first, and we're going to continue to do a great job. Are you being pressured? Serving. Are you being pressured to go to go to any one or two, or have a number asked you to go to the governor on their behalf? Uh, no, there have been obviously a number of people who've suggested, "Hey, can you put in a word here or there?" I've said from the very beginning that Senator Isaacson and our entire team are going to be respectful a of the senator's retirement and b of the very difficult decision that Brian Kemp's got to make, and he's going to have to live with that. Decision decision himself. And so he doesn't need a lot of outside influence. Johnny Isaacson is very aware that former senators and former governors trying to pick their successor have been kind of political flops. And Johnny doesn't want that to be a part of his legacy. So we've, I've been particularly careful about engaging that in any way, shape, or form. Greg, on the show yesterday, uh, Andrew Gillespie from Emory, who, who people always respond to thinking that she really understands politics for, in, a, in a very deep way, uh, made the point, in a rather fiercely made the point, that anyone who thinks that uh, voters are going to choose their candidate on the basis of gender misunderstands entirely uh, the reality. And if you sort of alluded to that, it's about issues. Uh, Party identification plays a larger role. And she made that point very strongly yesterday. Yeah, it's also about a different perspective. And um, and look, I mean, 
you're right. Voters are going to vote for someone just because of what they look like or what they talk. They, they want to see someone who, who might have a different perspective. And I think for Republicans who have been really challenged, uh, you know, for, for, for years now with the same sort of uh, uh, cast of, of white men. Um, and I think if you look at the Republican statewide officials, there's only one Republican f- woman in statewide who, who won a statewide race, and that's a, p- a public service commissioner. Mm-hmm. Um, that has been a challenge for them to broaden the tent. That doesn't necessarily mean they will open the floodgates um, for lots of suburban women, but it could give Republicans a new face on some of these issues if, if he goes that direction. When are they going to pick? You're closer to the governor as a reporter than most people out there. It. I'm still waiting for him to announce a deadline for when these applications. Seriously, I don't <laughs> yeah, think, I don't I think he can. Um, he's he's not going to name a shortlist, I doubt, until he says until he cuts off this process. So I think next comes a deadline. Then you'll see a flood of procrastinators <laughs> file their applications, and then you might see, then you might see a shortlist of four or five names. Okay. Just to guess. Terry Chuck Efstration, another yes. name uh, from up there in Gwinnett County, uh, threw his name in. He's fascinating. I mentioned on the show yesterday, he drew some attention this last session. He's a Republican, but he uh, sponsored a very progressive uh, measure, a hate crimes he bill. Did. And uh, it brought him, I think, bipartisan uh, uh, support. And so his throwing his name in. After having gone through that, it's interesting. I don't know what his uh, uh, standing is with Kemp. I don't know what his standing is with Kemp either. That is beyond my my ken. But I do know that he he did. He really led the way um, on the hate crimes bill, and not always with the support of I think others within his caucus. He's also been a very outspoken voice against to 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 promote laws that are that fight sexual exploitation and human trafficking. Yeah. He's been very very forward on that. You know, he chairs a, one of the House Judiciary committees. He's I think that knowing Chuck, and I don't know him very, very well, but he, but we worked together on a piece of legislation that I had this year dealing with sexual exploitation. And I know that he probably did not submit that application, submit that resume without giving it a tremendous deal yeah. of thought. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Greg Blustein, you have to get to an event in Douglas County. And if you need to get out the door, you should. we don't want to keep you from doing that. We don't want you to... Your main job is to report for the AJC, but if you have to go before you do, meanwhile, I think many people believe any Democratic entrance into that uh, second race are kind of frozen until they find out who they might have to face from Kemp, yeah? Yeah, I mean, at least from a, from from the higher profile contenders, and there's a lot of talks that Representative Nulowitz can talk a little bit more about, but a lot of talks behind the scenes in Democratic circles about maybe getting behind one candidate so that there's not a split, because the best chance Democrats will probably have is winning an outright November rather than trying to you know win a, a, a runoff, runoff in January with right. the Democrats. Democrats have historically struggled in. All right. Um, let's move on. Heath, Heath um, we wanted to save the last couple of minutes. And thank you, Greg Bluestein, for uh, being with us today. Um, we look forward to having you back next week. And people will read about the event you're on your way to Douglas County to event to cover in tomorrow morning's uh, paper. Um, Heath, we uh, saved impeachment for the last couple minutes of the show today. Um there weren't any remarkable developments today, I think it's safe to say. The president had a very angry news conference, made a lot of uh, noise that, that uh, once again, going after Adam Schiff, saying the investigation is fake, that sort of thing. The uh, Democrats in the House are now going to issue subpoenas to try to get at the um, information they're being denied so far. And Mike Pompeo admitted this morning, yes, he was on the phone call, which sort of undermines the number of times he's tried to say, oh, I didn't really know much about what was going on. All that said, tell us about Johnny Isaacson. In some ways, he's kind of (laughs) chosen the right time to get out. This is going to be a very, very hard process to go through. What are your conversations with, I know you don't speak, for him, nor do you right. does he want you to. But what's your sense of how he feels about all this? You know, well, he he's not going to mind me ca- characterizing the fact that if his retirement obviously has nothing to do with this sure. or even the environment, sure. he is he believes in the fight for the right and the good and the battle. It's obviously about Parkinson's and and where he is and his his battle with that disease. However, you know, just yesterday we were talking about how disappointed he is. It's like a father talking about the disappointment uh, amongst uh, all of his children fighting, right? Because Johnny has that statesman-like approach to these kind of things. He says it reminds him of how the, the divisiveness of the 60s 
60s, it, it, Washington, D.C. does today. It reminds me of how divisive campuses were in the mm. 1960s. It reminds me of how divided Washington became during the Clinton impeachment to no avail for the benefit of the country, right? And it was the Republicans who at that time were kind of po- politicizing a legal technicality, so to speak, in a lot of ways, in order to drive home uh, political points as well. Uh, So there's, I think he wouldn't mind me sharing that there's a great degree of disappointment in his mind that his last three months in Washington, D.C. aren't going to be about continuing to fix uh, the VA, doing something about the debt and the deficit, fixing immigration, all the major issues that are in front of us. Health care, obviously, still a major issue. He's, he's still working on some things. There's issues to do with the ports. Uh, there's all kinds of things going on, and hopefully some of that will still happen. Does he have a gun measure as well and, that and, was reported and, and, and in he, the paper he, the he other came, day? He came up with a mass violence right. uh, measure because he doesn't want it in any way, shape, or form narrowed specifically to guns. Mass violence is now taking the form of vehicles, knives, and any other types of ways to create mass destruction. And he thinks that we do need to study that. We we started some of this right after Columbine, which is hard to believe, you know, 20 years ago. And then the federal government got out of that study. Uh, it got politicized. Uh, I think he's got a good measure there. However, uh, Johnny uh, is very concerned that what impeachment can do to us at the foreign policy level right now and domestically. Yeah. But we are where we are. Uh, the, the one thing we've talked about is whether or not it, there's so much built in. 47% of the country, as of yesterday, says that they believe we should be going through impeachment hearings. And yeah. about 47% of the country thinks we shouldn't, and that's kind of about where we are politically. I, I, I'm just not sure where this is headed. Um, Terry, Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff had a fascinating news conference this morning because they made it, it became clear how they're going to divide things up. Nancy Pelosi spent her time talking about legislation that Democrats in the House want to advance, uh, and Schiff talked about impeachment. So given that there's that tension, for you as a state legislator, Mm -hmm. an elected official in the state, how carefully do you have to talk about impeachment in in your area? So my district is majority Democratic, and I think that the majority of my district is probably just fine with moving forward with impeachment. I think that that in general, I think that the legislature truly does reflect what's happening in, in their communities, what's happening in Georgia. And I think that if you were probably to pull those 47 percentages, it might not it's probably not going to be all one party. I think that what's happened to a large degree is you have folks who who understand the pragmatic argument against impeachment, which is, you know, we, we can impeach him at the ballot box in, in November 2020. Do we want to give him anything that could bolster his arguments against Democrats? At the same time, you come to really this this moral, patriotic, American sense of, okay, what's happening here is wrong. And wow. And I think that's what I think that's where Pelosi's gotten to. If if I'm sort of going to armchair her, I think that we're at the point where you can't move further. You you can't let it go anymore. Like what's happened with this Ukraine call? What's happened? There's there's a litany of things that Trump has done that I think a lot of folks have been crying for him to be impeached over. But I think now it's to the point where there are actually things there. There's evidence. There are there are whistleblowers. There are things happening where it it doesn't matter how it might turn out politically to be able to sleep at night. You have to move forward with this impeachment. And I think that there are a lot of Americans who are probably going to be more and more almost begrudgingly accepting that this is the path we have to take. All right. Um, We're just about out of time for today's show. Heath, you made you reminded me and Johnny talking about it, reminding him of the 60s. I have very vivid memories of standing in the student union in my college every day having the same argument that the anti-war guys, the pro-war guys, every day had the same loud, angry arguments. And we never hurt each other and never accomplished anything. And that's how it feels. Things are progressing right now. So that's a perspective I hadn't given a lot of thought to. Uh, Terry and Owitz, uh, Heath Garrett, thank you so much for being here for Political Rewind today. We're going to be off tomorrow, but we'll be back Friday at 2 o'clock with another edition of Political Rewind. See you then. Great to be with you.